Hi, welcome to another superb session of our Murthy teleconference series. Today's teleconference is successful adjustment of status applications in the employment-based immigration context. This is Sheila Murthy, and I have the pleasure of having an incredible team of my two senior attorneys available to exchange and share ideas and have a lively discussion for you all this afternoon. I have attorney Aaron Finkelstein, the assistant managing attorney of our office, whom you've heard several times before, and attorney Dana DeLott, who I know you have also heard several times before. Again, to remind those who have heard this before and those who have not, it's a new, um, I don't want to use the word warning, but it's a reminder that no taping is allowed of these sessions because these are copyrighted materials of the Murthy Law Firm and we would appreciate your respecting our uh, requirement and maintaining privacy and not violating the law. Without further ado, let's get started. The first major topic we're going to talk about is obviously when can one file the I-485 adjustment of status application and what does this really mean? So Aaron, let me get started with you. When can an employee or an individual or a family file the adjustment 485 application in the employment-based context? Well, there's a law that limits the number of immigrant visas, the number of available seats or slots that's available for people to become lawful permanent residents each year. Because of this limitation, um, what they've basically done is they've established a system called a priority date system, which means that once you've completed in a labor certification case the labor and the I-140 in a national interest extraordinary ability type of case or where a labor cert is not required, once you've completed the I-140, you have the opportunity to file into the third and final stage of the green card, the 485 stage, when your priority date is current. When they look at the date that you initiated your labor cert or initiated your I-140, that would be your priority date. And when that date shows up, that whatever is listed on something called a visa bulletin, which is printed by the State Department, which demonstrates whether or not there are current numbers available, when they show that your date pre is, is before the date, earlier than the date showing on the visa bulletin, you're able to file into that stage. Okay, okay, fantastic. Thank you, Aaron. Now that we understand what the priority date is, let's get back to when the adjustment application can actually submit the I-485 adjustment application to the USCIS. You can file the adjustment of status application when that priority date is current. Very good. And there are times and there are cases, for example, if the priority date is current when your labor cert is approved, that you can concurrently file stage two, the I-140 stage, along with the adjustment of status stage. Similarly, in cases that don't require labor certification, but that they start with the I-140, again, if the priority date is current, you would be able to file the I-140 and the 485 together. Okay, superb. And again, this session is beneficial both for employers and for employees because it'll help the company understand its obligations of its employees and it'll help individuals and families going through the process. Speaking about families, Dana, um, can you explain how the adjustment application works for derivative beneficiaries, namely family members? Yes. The 
family members that we're talking about in this case are the spouse and the children under 21, not any other dependent family members such as parents, even if they really are your dependent. The spouses and children get the same category and the same priority date as the primary spouse, and they too can file an I-485 when that priority date is current. Um, ideally, they will do this at the same time as the primary family member, but not always. There can be different situations that would, would have them file later. Um, in order to file it, they must be physically here in the U.S., either admitted or paroled in a valid non-immigrant status. Wonderful. Okay, superb. Uh, so, Aaron, can you tell us what will happen if the child was under 21 years of age when they filed or started, the, when the parents started the green card process, uh, or even when the child filed the I-485 adjustment application, but now the child is over 21 years? Um, what are the options for that child or for, for the family, the parents, to deal with? Well, this was absolutely an enormous problem years ago. And they came out with a new law called the Child Status Protection Which Act. Which is not so new anymore since it was <laughs> August of 2002. Oh, my goodness. That senior attorney thing. I'm aging myself seven so quickly. Years ago, seven it years seems, ago. Yeah. It seems new to us. It That's seems true. new to me. But the, essentially what the Child Status Protection Act allowed you to do is if your case was into the I-140 stage and the priority date was not current, it allowed you to deduct the amount of time that it took them to complete the I-140 so that it allowed you to deduct that time from the child's age. And if the result was that the child would be less than 21 years old and then the priority date became current, you would have one year to be able to file that case into the queue as long as the priority date remained current. So it acted very positively as an element to freeze time, so to speak, for that short period of time to allow a second or an additional chance of the, to file into the 45 for a child. If it also allowed that if a child had filed into the third and final stage, that 485 adjustment of status stage, and then the child turned 21 years of age or older, that that child's age was fixed in time as less than 21, and that child would in fact be able to adjust as a derivative along with the parents. But as many of us know, and the few of us who have actually had to deal with it, and some of you in your families, it's a very, very tricky situation. There's tons of gray areas with unanswered questions by the law. And even as Aaron is now just explaining it to me, and I've heard this like a thousand times before, I still want to say, hey, what about when the priority dates became current and the family filed it in July and August of 2007? Now the date's gone retrogressed by 10 more years. Does that mean that child's age is frozen for 10 years? We don't know. There are so many millions of unanswered questions. It's pretty scary. Um, okay. Dana, now we'll jump back to you. What if the person was single when the I-485 was filed and now the individual gets married? Because this is a very common right. question we're asked every day in our consultations. Right, and, and many people actually plan their marriages around this. Um, hey, makes sense if you have to wait 10 years <laughs> right. to get your green card. It, so the, I mean, really, the answer to it, the key point here is that you absolutely have to get, in order for the spouse to be included and to get the same priority date, the marriage has to occur before the I-485 is approved. You don't have to get married before it's filed, you have to get married before it's approved. And with the priority dates the way they are, that gives people a lot of time. Um, Which may not be good for their parents and family members who want the child to get married. <laughs> we can't fix everything, but right. Um, 
Anyway, the key is to get married before the I-485 is approved. This should all be discussed with your lawyer because there are logistical issues. Ideally, you would bring your spouse here as a dependent or in their own category if you're bringing the spouse from abroad, and then they would file the 485 when the date became current. Um, but what's really, really important all in all is to get married before the 485 is approved. We do have a couple cases in our office where I think the person got married the very day their I-485 is approved and now we have to argue time zone. I don't think anybody should cut it that close. I agree, I agree. And what if the derivative spouse or the child is actually not in the U.S., has not been able to file for the adjustment, and now the principal's I-485 just got approved when they were either abroad or they never had a chance to file it? Right, then we can still, the, the spouse and the child will still manage to get to the U.S. in a following to join case this means that we have to request an immigrant visa at the consulate. As we said before, the spouse and any dependent children will get the same category and the same priority date. The problem with this is, as we all know, the dates move forward and backward. So if the, the primary gets an approval and then has to do the following to join case and the dates aren't current, then the family members are going to have to sit and wait for the date to become current, which we know could be a very long time. Right, and then one strategy that we followed is possibly maybe filing the I-824 while the you know adjustments primary applicants right. 485 is still pending for the family members and that mm -hmm. way hopefully uh, when the priority date becomes current the 485 gets approved here and the 824 gets approved there and the consulate is you know schedules a visa appointment it's all can be tricky and timing can be a very critical part of this whole deal right which is why it's better to kind of know of all these rules and try to avoid the situation but sometimes it's it's not it can't be avoided Right, right. And what happens if the marriage actually occurs after the I-485 approvals? Ugh, now we have a problem because the spouse, unless he or she has another way to come to the U.S., uh, they can't, they're not a derivative anymore. It, comes in, it turns into a family-based case, and the waiting Minimum time... Minimum six, eight years. Right. The waiting, we're back to waiting for visa numbers only in the family category, essentially the same thing, just in the family categories instead of the employment categories, and we're waiting six, eight years, whatever it is, it's a ridiculously long time. Yeah, and that is a huge problem and people don't sometimes realize it. And of course, as Dana had mentioned earlier, just a couple minutes ago, a very good option is for the principal to maintain H-1B, bring the spouse on H-4, or for the spouse to come in on her or his own uh, separate independent non-immigrant status, whether it's the F-1 or the H-1B, etc. Now. All of this sort of ties in, if all of us remember, the reason that so many of you actually are fortunate to have even been able to file your 485 adjustment of status applications was because of what we call the famous visa gate issue, which after the Nixon's Watergate scandal, anything with the scandal word has automatically got the, the suffix uh, attached to it of the gate word. Um, though except Bill Gates is a positive connotation, I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, so just to give a quick recap of the summer of 2007, uh, we had a rapid forward movement of priority date cutoff in the Department of State, U.S. Department of State Visa Bulletin of June 2007. Then on July 2nd morning, the first working day of July 2007, the Visa Bulletin, even though it had mentioned the dates were current in all employment-based categories other than other workers, suddenly went back and there was a huge UN cry and they finally sort of changed everything um, back to saying yes, that they would give us about four weeks to file all of the petitions. And at that time, obviously, derivative spouses and children were allowed to file too. 
Um, and then what ended up happening is, of course, there were several hundreds of thousands of applications were filed because the USCIS did not want to have to deal with what had happened with the numbers being considered current, then not current, then again current. And because of huge protest by many people, including you know, the politicians getting involved and congressional hearings and threats of lawsuits by the American Immigration Law Foundation, et cetera, they made the dates current. Um, and so they basically gave time until August 17th of 2007, which was that Friday, for I-485s to, uh, to reach them. But if the I-140 was not filed before that date, then the higher fees would apply and the priority dates were not current. It was still confusing enough at the end of the day. Uh, and unfortunately for some people who actually traveled abroad during that summer, um, some of them were able to rush and come back. There were others who were stuck and not able to travel back because they hadn't applied and booked a visa appointment and the consulates were backed up with visa appointment well, dates. Some of them changed their their schedules more than once because of this uncertainty. So they canceled their tickets and they couldn't get new tickets. It was and then a they rebooked it and they ended up going just on the day the government made the rule. I remember I know one person who absolutely refused to come back and now is really wanting really upset with themselves for not having done come back because their their whole life is at standstill and the principal cannot just work on the employment authorization or EAD card, EAD document, but is now forced to maintain separate H-1B status. And in this economy, it's not easy for businesses and companies to sponsor H-1Bs if, there's, you know, if they're concerned about denials and dealing with issues of their own. Um, and if some people, a lot of people made mistakes by forgetting to sign the check or put the wrong amounts on the checks, et cetera, and that resulted in the 485 application being sent back or rejected, that created problems because once the date cutoff date finished, the person could have no, no other obligation or no other choice. Okay, so that was a sort of a quick overview of the total turmoil and chaos that existed in that time um, back two years ago, almost two years ago. But Aaron, we want to come to you and ask you, what are some of the current issues that people are now dealing with on cases that were filed during the summer of 2007? I'm happy to answer the question, and I just want to take a moment to brag just on behalf of our firm, because I remember in 2007, VisaGate, I remember how we went ahead and said when everybody said they rescinded the 2007, uh, the July 2007 bulletin, and we said, we're going to file it anyway, we'll see them in court. And we stood up behind what we did, and it's amazing because eventually, through efforts like ours and Zoe Lofgren and um, various different government officials and various um, ALF and things like that, we were very successful in being able to push it forward. You know, you're right. We, uh, we are, it's one of the uh, many, many things we're very happy and excited and proud, and proud, of. proud that we were able to help thousands and thousands of individuals and work together. And we were probably one of the few law firms that actually managed to file every single person who came to us and contacted us before the cutoff date, I think it was July 31st, 2007 or whatever. And there were some people who even came after that in August, but we were very proud and we had an incredible team with support from every single person, whether it was the receptionist, the support staff, the attorneys, the paralegals, working nights and weekends. And yes, we were well, able we to do it. did actually personally prepare all those cases. All those cases were reviewed by attorneys. Multiple reviews by attorneys to catch legal issues, to ask questions, to come back with issues. 
Um, and, and so it is something, but we're also very proud and thankful to both employers and employees who were able to get us the documents and information and paperwork in record time, get those birth certificates, marriage certificates, documents. So it was a wonderful cooperative effort with your help, our help, our clients, everybody working, holding hands and pulling the rabbit out of the hat and doing this magic trick. Now coming back, and no, I agree 100%. And now coming back to your question of current issues that people are facing, well, if you were looking at a situation where you knew you had tons of cases that were filed in 2007 and you knew that you weren't going to be able to adjudicate them until that priority date became current, you weren't going to be able to look at them properly until the priority date current, you know that you're waiting for an overwhelming amount of work. So USCIS is trying to deal with that overwhelming amount of work that they see coming down the pike. And what they've decided to do is to pre-adjudicate as many of these cases as possible. And recently in, the, uh, in a conference that we attended where we had an opportunity to meet with the USCIS officials, they said their goal is to pre-adjudicate most, if not all, of these cases by the end of December, the beginning of January 2010. What this basically means is even though the priority date is not current, and even though these adjudications cannot result in them making an approval, a positive decision, because there is no number available, they can possibly result in RFEs, uh, requests for evidence, notice of intent to denies, and possibly the scheduling of interviews to review the quality of the cases. I see. Okay. And, and Dana, um, I understand that there's now a recent disturbing trend that's been going on at some offices. Can you just shed some light on what's going on and we've seen a few cases where apparently the USCIS, office, USCIS officers weren't aware of VisaGate and particularly weren't aware of the concessions that were made with respect to being able to file all the cases by August 17th uh, 2007 they're looking at the visa bulletin that was reissued during that time that showed that the dates were not current so um, you know, initially this sort of came as a surprise because everybody who lived through that time just assumes that everyone else remembers because it's a key point in our memories. But for newer officers, what we're telling people is to take the information. It's all available on our website. We have lots of articles and, and all the USCIS notices and at least bring those with you to the interview um, and, and so that that can be clearly covered. And then the other thing that um, we've been seeing is that uh, really the same thing, that, that they assume that those cases are improperly filed and so then they're trying to deny them. Mm -hmm. And so what can people do to combat this problem? They should, if they have an interview, they should come prepared. They could bring a lawyer from our firm if they would like to. Um, if they have you know, gone in unprepared and they run into the problem, then they can contact us. We can try to sort it out, either file a motion, contact a particular uh, service center or, or a local office where it was uh, where the problem occurred and and just sort it out for them but it is always better of course to go in prepared than to try to fix the problem after and, the fact. And that's an important point that Dana just mentioned is you have to assume in every single case especially if you're called for an interview as an individual or if it's your company and your employees called for an individual assume the worst be prepared to take the documents copies of the law copy of information because there are a lot of uh, well-intentioned but poorly trained because of lack of adequate finances or other reasons immigration officers that may need guidance and you don't want to sound too condescending but you absolutely we need to point out to them what the law is and what the section of the law is and why we're asking for the favor or the benefit because it's really not a favor but it's what the law allows us 
to request. Aaron, I understand there's another even more disturbing trend, and what's that and how have you been dealing with it? Well, we've discussed before about the pre-adjudications, and what's been going on in some offices, unfortunately we've noticed more than two or three offices, where they actually, the officers conduct the interview, and at the interview they say everything is fine, but unfortunately the priority date isn't current today. Not that it wasn't current when you filed it, but it's not current today. And since it's not current today, we have no choice but to deny your case. And they go ahead and they deny these pending 45 cases. Okay. And, mm -hmm. and what else? Oh, I was going to say, I think you mentioned then how do we deal with it. And I was going to say what we've been doing, and this is something you absolutely must contact uh, in my opinion, a knowledgeable immigration lawyer. This really does require, I think, a little bit of aggressive lawyering in a sense that not only do we file the motion to reopen at the local office, but because we're concerned that it's a local office issue, we also have brought it to the district director of that local office. We've also sent copies of the law, copies of what we call the SOP standard operating procedure, which shows that the true rule, what they're supposed to do, is hold the case in abeyance until the priority date becomes current and then to adjudicate it properly. And then hopefully approve it for the family and then we have the district director that promptly changed their position based on the phone call from the Murthy Law Firm attorney following up with them. That is correct. Wonderful. Okay, now the issue that we deal with all the time, whether you're an employer that is seeking a very good employee that's working somewhere else and wanting to move, or whether you're the employee finding a better job opportunity, uh, the whole issue of the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, or AC21, which provided for 485 adjustment of status portability um, in certain situations. Um, so, uh, Aaron, can you briefly describe AC21 portability and what it means and what are the benefits? Well, I'm going to limit it only to the adjustment of status context. Essentially, what it says is if there is a 485, an I-45 adjustment of status application that's been pending for more than 180 days, that the case becomes portable which means that the employee can pick up the case and move it to another company or another job as long as the employee will be performing job duties in the same or similar job classification. This law originally didn't anticipate that there would be a chance where you could file I-140 and 45 concurrently, so they have a series of memos that have come out, and essentially the memos had added the concept of labor certification approved, I-140 approved it, question mark, a little bit of a gray area, but we'll say absolutely approved, and 45 pending for 180 days, they need all three of those steps in order to be able to pick up the job and to move it to a different company performing the same or similar job classification duties. I see. And what happens? I mean, what about the whole issue about the I-140 approval? Does it have to be approved? Can it be approvable when filed? What if the person is laid off before the I-140 is approved? Very common situations that will come up all the time. No, it absolutely is, and the the general consensus is right now to be safe and to wait for the I-140 to be approved and the 45 pending for 180 days to be able to move over. There is a gray area. The memos seem to be a little ambiguous on this term. We currently are pursuing this in actually in federal court to get more clarity on this particular issue. Okay. And what are the options? So they can try to premium process the I-140 to try to get a quick approval? Nowadays, we... From started from, I guess, June 29th, 2009, from Monday. And uh, basically, they can go ahead and try to do it for almost all kinds of employment-based petitions, I-140s, other than national interest waiver and um, um, 
I think it was one other kind, almost every other kind of uh, the multinational executives and managers. Everybody else is able to file the I-140 premium. Dana, yeah. what if the I-140 petition was already approved? Can the employer do anything to it? Well, the I-140 petition is the employer's filing. So yes, the employer can always revoke the I-140. The real question is what difference does it make? Um, when you're using AC-21, it's actually really not supposed to make a difference because if the I-140 has been approved and then the employer revokes it, uh, if the USCIS knows that you're using AC-21, the case is just supposed to go smoothly on its way. If they don't know that you're using AC-21, they're supposed to issue a notice of intent to deny and then you've got 30 days to respond and explain that you're using AC-21 and again, hopefully the case should just go smoothly on its way. The problem is that we see cases where this doesn't always happen, where the USAIS doesn't follow its own guidance memos and will just come up with a denial of the I-485. And in that situation, we have to file motions to reopen. The person does have to qualify for AC-21. They need to have a job at that point that qualifies in the for AC-21. the same or similar job occupation right. classification. Otherwise, there's, there's nothing to argue in a motion. Mm -hmm. We have to show the case is, is perfectly good. Um, we have filed a fair number of those motions and they've all been approved, but for individuals that um, are not maintaining H1, it is a uh, very scary situation. They, uh, you know, it's expensive, it's scary, it takes months to sort out. It, it's not ideal, but ultimately, again, all those motions that we filed have been approved. And I haven't seen a whole lot of those lately, so hopefully this problem is, is, is reducing, but it's still out there. And then now there's a new problem that we've seen some of, and, and I think Aaron can talk about this uh, more because he's been dealing with, the, with some of these cases. We have seen some cases where the employer requests to revoke the I-140, and then the USCIS, instead of just acting on the employer's request and doing that, which again would allow the case to continue, uh, they've taken that opportunity to look at the I-140 again and decide that they never should have approved it in the first place and take their own action to revoke. And that is an enormous problem because AC21 requires that the I-140 was originally valid. And so while so we they're have coming up with issues of potential fraud or incomplete application or, or no financial ability to pay or cred right. educational credentials being lacking, which is really, really very difficult and onerous to prove because now you you not only had an approvable but filed, but you actually had an approved I-140 petition. And, and now they're coming have, back. Well, and the, the person has relied upon this sometimes for several years after the approval. You also, in order to argue about some of these points, if it has to do with ability to pay rather than education, you need the employer's cooperation. Employer might not even be in business anymore or, or just may not be interested. So right. this is a big and problem. Even more ironic is the fact that the I-140 withdrawal is an automatic withdrawal. So it's as if the I-140 no longer exists yet they're coming back to a case that's already been finished, that the case is closed, it's withdrawn, and they're saying we're unwithdrawing it just with enough time for us to be able to revoke it. So right. it's almost like, it's like killing it guy, twice, which, you know, there's, there's a lot of technical stuff well, that doesn't Well, I mean, really, according to the uh, William R. Yates memo from back in, you know, three or four or five, six years ago, if it was uh, this, uh, really, he had mentioned, Bill Yates had said that the USCI is supposed to issue an RFE or annoyed, if there is a request for an I-140 revocation, that's ideal. Um, only if, they are, if the USCIS is not aware of the AC-21 portability to the new company. Um, and that's one of the important reasons why we at the Murthy Law Firm have been recommending right from the beginning that it is important to notice, notify USCIS 
when a person ports to a new company using AC21 portability because there were a lot of rumors floating around on the internet. Don't bother to notify, don't file AC21 portability because if you file it, it'll trigger the USCIS into looking at the file. Yes, but if you don't notify the USCIS, the chance of getting a denial of the I-485 or a notice of intention to deny is even greater and it's much safer to notify and tell them that the new job is same or similar and protect yourself. It and preserves these arguments that we have. I mean, this issue that we just raised about the USAIS going back in and, and trying to revoke the I-140 or revoking it, um, like I said, it's very problematic, but we have far more arguments to work with if there is AC21 notification and, and the person has asserted that they're using it. Exactly, exactly. So what can the person do to protect themselves and their families while the I-485 is pending, Aaron? I think the first thing is if it's possible to maintain an H1 and an H4 for the family members to create a redundancy in the process so if, God forbid, something does go wrong, you'll still be able to maintain status while you sort it out. That I think is, is an enormous thing to do and a big and a strong recommendation. The second thing that I would recommend is that if you're reporting to a new employer, as Sheila and Dana were just saying, I think it's extremely important to inform the USCIS. So under that section that was quoted, the INA 204J, that the USCIS is aware that the I-140 shall remain valid for AC-21 purposes and that it's a viable ported case. Uh, finally, the third and final thing is we're dealing with layoffs, we're dealing with employees going through transitions. So if an employee is, finds themselves in that position, it would be nice if it would be possible for them to find a commitment from a future employer or a future job offer in which they could notify AC21. So though they may not be working there now, if they can get a commitment to say, I will work there, at the time my green card is approved, that would be something that would helpfully, hopefully help to respond to an RFB or a request for clarification from immigration. Wonderful, okay. Um, coming back to the issue, the, one of the most common questions that I know we all three and everyone's asked is, can we predict how many cases are pending, how long things are going to take, when will the priority dates become current, et cetera. So in order to really understand the question or even to attempt to answer it, I guess we need to um, sort of go over how many applications are approximately pending I-485s at this time at the USCIS. Dana? Yeah, I, you know, I, I know this is not the news that everyone wants because the, the numbers, you know, look a little overwhelming, but the most recent information that was released indicated that we have about 200,000 I-485 applications that are currently pending with the USCIS. Out of those, about 120,000 are EB2 and EB3 cases chargeable to India. And already about 25,000 of those cases have been pre-adjudicated um, and are just waiting for visa number availability. I believe actually it's 25,000 in both in each, in EB2 and EB3. And so when you look at the very small quota that's assigned to uh, each country uh, would be about 2,800 uh, each year, EB2 numbers each year, it looks like this is going to take a very long time for those numbers to become available. Um, in reality, we're not necessarily just limited to the 2,800 because there are rules for numbers to uh, trickle down from other categories and to be shifted across if they're not used. But even with that, you know, there are, are, are far more um, people looking for visa numbers than we have numbers available. I see. 
Well, with that uh, little bit overwhelming numbers and how many years uh, that it could take a decade or two for the priority dates to actually keep moving, Aaron, do you see any hope? Well, I do see some hope, but I also want to say that because it would take a decade or two for the numbers to move, I just want to remind everybody in the audience that there is the issue, the other part of AC21, which is if a labor certification had been pending for more than 365 days, or a case had been in queue for more than 365 days, or an I-140 was approved and a priority date was not current, that they have the ability to extend their H-1 in one year or three year increments. So first of all, there's also a big picture to, type of, to try to look at. If you say, I'm okay with being here for a while, I'm okay with being on H-1B, I just don't want to run out of time. Right now, the green card process and the non-immigrant process have some links together in order to be able to remain here and extend. Um, other things that I see is that it looks like EB1 continues to be current for all countries. Um, I do know that, um, that there were, Dana was mentioning the trickle-down about the EB4 and the EB5s and the possibilities of unused EB1s also being able to become available into the EB2 and the EB3 category. Um, I don't look at that as something that's going to open things up enormously. I think right now the forecast for EB2 and EB3, it's a little tough, and we shouldn't have too high expectations. But one thing that I think is very positive, and it's funny because I recently just read an article on this, um, I think that was, um, well, it was on Yahoo News, for example, but it just said something that was very, very interesting. What it said is that there seems to be a consensus across the board through Congress and the Senate and the President that comprehensive immigration reform is necessary. It's something that doesn't, that it does not appear that there's an enormous about a dispute over, just about what the fine details are to get things moving. So, <laughs> but everybody wants what they want. I mean, the people <laughs> who are not in status want that to be covered. The people who are waiting for 10 or 20 years want more immigrant visa numbers. And again, nobody knows what that's going to have. That's a big unknown. Uh, agreed. But as close as we've ever been, that's how it feels right now. True, true. Well, and, you know, when we're looking at numbers backlogged to this level, something... Uh, my feeling is something's going to change in this ten, when you're looking at 10-year backlogs, 15-year backlogs. We've, you know, everyone in this room has been been practicing immigration law long enough to know it always changes. You just don't know exactly when and and how. And so, I guess in my eternal optimism, I, I feel like something is going to give way before everybody has to wait 10 to 15 years. Well, hopefully something will give. And, you know, when the, some of even the other piece of ray of hope is where people are like, hey, maybe October 1, 2009, when the new fiscal year starts, uh, some more numbers will open up. And it's true that Charlie, Charles Oppenheim, the chief of the Immigrant Visa Control and Reporting Division at the U.S. Department of State, did mention at the meeting that we had uh, several weeks ago with him, and we've written about a couple articles about that in the Muthi Bulletin and Muthi.com, uh, reported that he expects the EB3 rest of the world to actually move forward quite a bit to March 1, 2003, rather than being completely unavailable. So it's sort of good news. But again, you know, even though we expect some movement in the priority dates on October 1 of 2000 of each year, because there'll be new influx of new numbers, it's not a huge number. As Dana just pointed out, it's a small proportion compared to how many cases have already been pre-adjudicated at the I-45 stage, especially for nationals of India and then second of China, which has huge uh, and one of the questions we're often asked is, hey, what can I do? What can you do? What can any of us do? Whether you're an employer, a business, an individual, a company, whatever, 
you absolutely can believe and support comprehensive immigration reform. You should contact your senator or congressperson, write to them, email them, follow up with them, encourage the employers, especially businesses are strongly encouraged into asking for specifics because I know there was a huge fear factor about the Durbin-Grassley kind of bill that would have clamped down on H1 severely, restricted it, and you know, companies say, what can we do? Go through lobbies, do what it takes, invest time, effort, energy, some money, but basically point out the benefits of bringing in highly skilled professionals that can help to enrich and protect jobs in America. Uh, did either Aaron or Dana have any quick last final thoughts? Because I know we like to follow the 30 to 45 minute time frame. We are very respectful and mindful of times. Um, and um, you know, we have like two or three minutes to wrap up. I think my, my only last thought, one point that we touched on is this issue of getting RFEs right now on the cases that were filed in the summer. And it does look like the USCIS has finally gotten to those cases. We are seeing people getting RFEs. Um, and so people should be aware. A lot of times they think that no one looks at their case until the priority date is current. They should be aware of that possibility, and that can be both good and bad. It, sometimes you get an RFE asking for proof of a job offer, and if you're unemployed right now, that's just not going to be very good unless there's a proper answer and a proper job. On the other hand, if you get an RFE asking for something simple and you know that that's pretty much all they want from you, then everything else in your case seems like it looks okay, that's good news. Wonderful. With that, I think we really need to wind up because we're just about at 45 minutes. We thank you so much for participating in today's telephone conference call of the Murthy Law Firm. We are always delighted and honored to have you attend. And we certainly look forward to continuing to help you and serve your needs to take care of you, your family, your business, uh, as you continue to understand the complex and ever-changing immigration laws. Thank you so much for the opportunity. On behalf of Aaron, Dana, myself, and, and, and our entire team here, we look forward to continuing to take good care of you and your business or your family. Have a terrific day. Bye-bye.